0: Our oh dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we pray that now we will let the word of Christ dwell richly in us so that, and you will teach us and admonish us in all wisdom so that we may live lives that bring glory to you and do everything, whether in word or deed, in the name of the Lord Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Happy New Year to all of you hope you had a, a, a good New Year. Now, uh, you know, me and Cynthia were in KL last week for Chinese New Year, and uh, it was fairly hectic. Uh, we went around visiting, and it was one the last day we were there. We just decided to stay at home and chill at home and not go out and visit people. So we turned on the cable TV, and it just happened that this show came up called uh, "Do You What's Called? Did You Hear About the Morgans?" Okay, I don't know whether you've ever seen it, but it's basically a, a show by Hugh Grant and uh, Sarah Jessica Parker, right? They, they're a couple in this show, and uh, their husband and wife, and they happen to witness a, a murder, unwittingly. So this murder was basically looking for them, trying to kill them, and so the police said that uh, they had to go in a witness protection scheme, and they got new identities, they had to leave New York behind with all this wonderful lifestyle and go into this place in the middle of nowhere in America to you know live a country lifestyle, okay? To start their new lives, and you know looking at this show, I was thinking, well, actually that is a picture of the Christian life, believe it or not. You know today's today's passage in Colossians tells us that we have a new identity, it's just like we are in the witness protection program. We've been given new names and new identities and new lives completely. See, our old lives are forever dead and in the past, and we now have to start afresh in completely new lives. So, let's look at Colossians chapter 3 today. I won't be using the transparencies, uh, I mean the the data projector, so uh, (laughs) you can tell what era I'm from. Okay, so, (laughs) alright, so um, yeah, let's look at Colossians chapter 3, and I'll be just... Keep your Bibles open at Colossians chapter 3. Okay, So what is this new identity that God has given to us? Well, it says in chapter 3 verses 1 to 4 what it is. Okay, Our new identity is that now we are in Christ. So let me read to you from verse 1. Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God and set your minds on things above not on earthly things for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God when Christ who is your life appears then you also will appear with him in glory so in these verses Paul tells us the basis for living the Christian life you know he doesn't say be good because God will only accept you if you're a good person And he doesn't say, obey the following rules I'm going to give to you, so that you can win points with God. No. The basis for living the Christian life is not trying to earn favor with God. Instead, it is being who you already are. That's what living the Christian life is all about. Being, living out who you already are in Christ. Now, who are we before God? Who are we? Well, the answer is that we are people who are in Christ. Paul says in verse 3, you have died with Christ. And then in verse 1, you have been raised with Christ. And in verse 3, your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And verse 4, you will appear with Christ in glory. Now, this is not the first time that he has told us this in Colossians. In last week's passage in chapter 2, if you flip back to chapter 2, you can see in verse 12, I'll read to you, verse 12, Having been buried with him in baptism, i.e. we have died and been buried with Christ, and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. And then jumping down to chapter 2 verse 20, Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? So even in chapter 2, Paul has already told us that Christians have died with Christ and have been raised with Christ. Now I don't know how hard it is to uh, get a very prestigious country club membership in Singapore. I don't know what are the most famous ones are like here. Okay, you have to tell me. But basically, in some country clubs, I know that you can't just buy your membership, right? You have to actually somehow inherit it or, or something like that, okay? So it's so exclusive, you can't get in. So how are you going to get in? Well, imagine if your father had this prestigious country club membership. Now that means that you actually have access to all of the privileges and all of the facilities in the club. Now you yourself may not be a club member, but you have full access to everything that your father has because you are included in your father's club membership. And that is what it's like when we are in Christ. We are included in Christ and we enjoy everything that belongs to Him. See, whatever He has, we also have. So, He died and we too have died to sin. He rose again and we too have been raised again with Him. He's seated at the right hand of God and that's where we are too right now. We are seated in the heavenly places with Christ. And he will again be revealed and we too will appear with him on that day in glory. You see, So because we are in Christ, because we are at this very moment with Christ, we must set our hearts on things above and set our minds on things above. In other words, who we are now must dictate how we live now. So if we are citizens of heaven then we must think and live like heavenly people. So what exactly is it does it mean for us to set our hearts and our minds on things above? It's not being too heavenly minded for any earthly good. You know it's not like you live just in the clouds and ignore all your earthly responsibilities. That's not what it means. And it doesn't mean that you have to every one of us has to go and sell everything we have and be missionaries. It doesn't mean you can't uh, do business or buy houses or get married. No, it doesn't mean that. Now, if you look at the rest of chapter 3, Paul actually tells us what he means by set your hearts and your minds on things above. See, in the rest of chapter 3, what Paul is interested in is what we do with our bodies, how we relate to other people, basically how we live the whole of our lives. So, Setting our hearts and minds on heaven ultimately means living all of life in a way that is consistent with being citizens of heaven. So it's not that we ignore all our earthly concerns, but it's that we bring heaven down to earth. We bring heavenly perspective down to all the things that we do every day on earth. So whether you're at work, whether you're at home, in church, or by yourselves, whatever you do must be conscious Of your citizenship in heaven. So then, how should citizens of heaven live? Well, the rest of the chapter from verse 5 onwards tells us how citizens of heaven should live. So, firstly, in verses 5 to 9, Paul tells us that because we belong to heaven, we must put to death everything that is earthly. So, let me read to you from verse 5. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices. Now it says here in verse 9, You have taken off your old self with its practices. So it's just like Hugh Grant and Sarah Jessica Parker having taken off their old identities in the witness protection scheme and putting on completely new identities. So you are a new person, Paul says. You have taken off the old you. So that's why in verse 5 he says, Put to death, therefore, what is in your earthly nature. Now you might be a bit surprised that he says, You have taken off your old self. Then he says, Put to death what is in your old self. Doesn't seem to make sense. You know, it's like, so is, it, is the old self dead or is it not dead? Do I have to put it to death or is it already dead? Well, it's actually both. Both are true. You see, yes, you have died with Christ to sin, and yes, you are now seated with Christ in heaven, but you still need to continue to fight sin on earth in this life. So, really living the Christian life is a balance between knowing who we are and what we must do. Now, some people just focus on what we must do. They don't really focus on who we are in Christ. So, they say, being a Christian means doing things, means we have to go to church we have to read the Bible, we have to pray we have to follow these rules, we have to don't smoke don't drink and so on now that is an unbalanced view of what Christian living is about, it's all about do do, do, that's all and then you have the other people who go to the other extreme and they just focus on who we already are in Christ and they forget about the part which says what we must do so in this book by Pastor Joseph Prince, he says basically just focus on knowing who you are in Christ. Don't worry so much about sin. it's effortlessly. You just if you just focus on who you are in Christ, it will automatically you automatically become really good. Everything has already been done for you. You don't have to worry about anything, just remember it's all done, done, done. Not do do do, it's done done done. Now that is the other extreme. That is also unbalanced. See, what does the Bible say say to us? Well, the Bible says, live out who you are. Live out who you are. That means you know that you are in Christ and that must lead to living a certain way. Because of who you already are in Christ, you must put to death your sinful nature and live godly lives. It is hard work. It's not necessarily easy and effortless. But we must do it, we do it not because we want to earn merit with God or earn our salvation, but we do it because we have been saved already and we have new identities in Christ. So now, what kinds of sins must we put to death? (coughs) Well, there are a few groups of sins here. The first group focuses on sexual sins. Put to death sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires so all kinds of sexual sins from the physical act to the thought in your head they must be put to death so it includes adultery or premarital sex or extramarital sex or homosexual acts or incest or lustful thoughts about illicit acts or internet pornography all these things we must get rid of them so Perhaps you are struggling with pornography, or perhaps you struggle with sexual lust or any other kind of sexual sin. Well the remedy to that is remember who you are. Remember who you really are. You are in Christ and you are seated with Christ in heaven. You know that? How can you be viewing pornography sitting next to Christ in heaven? How can you be, you know, in bed? casually with other people, knowing that you belong to Christ. And what other sins are mentioned here? Well, in verse 5, it says greed. Greed. Now, Greed is one of the most seductive sins for people like us who live in an affluent society. Okay, because everyone around us, they never have enough. They're always wanting more. They're never satisfied. And so we tend to feel you know the pressure that oh you know this so and so is upgrading, they're getting better ahead of us and so on and greed is very seductive. And here it says that greed is idolatry. Greed is idolatry. Why? Because whatever you put your heart into that is your idol. And when you desperately want to own something in fact that thing owns you it becomes your god you see so whatever so greed is not measured by absolutely how much you have but greed is measured by where your heart is that is what greed is so here it says put to death greed which is idolatry and set your heart completely on things that are above And then next, in verses 8-9, to we turn to a different class of sins here. These are sins against other people. And particularly Paul is talking to the church, in in the Colossian church. So, he's talking about sins against other people in the church. Especially sins uh, to do with how we speak to other people. Sins to do with how we speak about other people. Verse 8, But now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger rage malice slander filthy language from your lips do not lie to each other it's so easy to get angry with other people isn't it i mean sometimes you know we say this is righteous anger okay yes it may be true that uh you know you you see something that's really wrong and you feel Angry, that this, this is just wrong. For example, if you if you see uh, uh, maybe a child getting abused, you get angry, right? And you get indignant about it. That's righteous anger. But if you're honest with yourself, really, if you think about most of the times that you're angry, actually, most of the time, our anger is just personal resentment. When somebody, you know, uh, you know when, when they hurt our pride, when they don't acknowledge us, when they don't do to us as we think that we deserve, you know, we get annoyed with people, we get irritated with people because they, don't, you know, they, they offend our dignity maybe by something that they said. That kind of anger, it says, put to death. So are you angry with somebody? You know, think of somebody in the church that you're most angry with or the one that you dislike the most. Okay, Stop being angry, it says. Ephesians uh, says, in your anger do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. That's in Ephesians chapter 4. So if you are angry, it says get over it quickly. Don't let it turn into a a festering grudge. Don't let it turn into a smoldering kind of resentment. Don't plan to return evil for evil. Because that is malice. And don't talk about them behind their backs. That is slander. And don't get so angry that you curse and swear at them. That is filthy language. And don't put up a false front and speak insincerely. Because that is lying to one another. We must put off the old us with all of its sins. We are people who are in Christ. And you'd be asked the question before, how can how should we who are citizens of heaven live? Well the first part of the answer we saw already it is Take off the sinful old you. And the next part of the answer is in chapter 3, verse 10 to the end of the passage, and that is put on the new you. That is how we ought to live. So in verse 9, I'll read to you Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. You have taken off the old self of sin and you have put on the new self. Now what is this new self? Verse 10 tells us that this new self is becoming more and more like Christ, its creator. And verse 11 shows us that the new self is actually not just us individuals all having lots of new selves, but this new self is a corporate body made up of all kinds of different bodies. All of us are the new self. See, The new self is all of us together in Christ. That's why in verse 11 it says that this new self is Christ and Christ in all. So, putting on this new self is putting on the body of Christ, becoming part of this body. And because we have put on the new us, that is, we have put on Christ, the body of Christ, we must keep clothing ourselves with the characteristics of Christ. Verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Now, here again, do you see that Paul is saying, This is who you already are. That's why you must behave in a certain way. You see, you are God's chosen people. You are holy. You are dearly loved. So, you must live holy and godly lives. So, in verse 12 to 17, the main concern here is our relationships with one another. In the church okay? Now, like I said before Sometimes we find That people in church can be difficult right? Sometimes we find certain people Are, are quite difficult So, you know We find that there are some people That we can click easily with But other people We find very hard to get along with And sometimes People have prickly personalities And they rub us up the wrong way And we just don't like the way that they speak or the way that they act, and our natural reaction to them is just ignore them, uh, just avoid them. Uh, we shake our heads at them, and we see them doing something. We roll our eyes, and you know we complain about them behind their backs, right? And if we are really provoked, we can even turn a bit nasty against them. That is a natural, sinful human response, but that is not appropriate behavior. For God's holy chosen people who are seated in heaven with Christ. It says we should clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Now, Compassion means that when these people are really in need, we don't just pity them, we don't just feel sorry for them, we truly are concerned for them and do whatever we can to help them in their need kindness means being good, being generous towards them don't give them a black face when they give you a black face but be pleasant to them even when they are unpleasant to you that is kindness humility means not looking down on them and thinking that I'm so much better than this person gentleness or meekness means being willing not to assert our rights but being willing to let them win. Being willing to pass over the insults and the slights, Being willing to, you know, even if you are in the right, to give way to them. That is meekness, gentleness. And patience means keep doing all these things, not just one time or two times, but keep doing it for weeks, for months, for years. That is patience. Verse 13 says, Bear with each other. In other words, put up with them. In other words, tolerate what they're like. Not grudgingly gritting your teeth, you know, but truly, genuinely, in compassion, in kindness, in humility, meekness and patience, bearing up with the sins and faults of other people. Now, we've been talking about that people that we find difficult to get along with. Maybe they haven't really done anything to you. You just don't like them. Okay? But what about people who've actually done something bad against you? They've wronged you. Maybe they, somebody has slandered you behind your back and you found out about it. Or maybe you told a secret to somebody and they blabbered it to the rest of the church. Or maybe they were unkind to you or very unfairly judgmental towards you. Well, It says in verse 13, Forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. So not only we must bear with one another, we must forgive one another. See, they may not deserve to be forgiven, but then we too did not deserve to be forgiven, yet the Lord forgave us. So when we have offended God so badly and He forgave us, how can we also not forgive others who have done less wrong to us. And when we have received so much grace and mercy from God, how can we not show the same grace and mercy to others? That is what it is saying here. And verse 14, And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. See, everything that we do, the goal of, of our life in church here is love. See, love is the life of heaven. And that's why as citizens of heaven, our aim and goal is to love. And what must define us as God's holy chosen people is love. See, without love, everything is fake. Everything is pretense. We must be people of love. God calls us to a life of love and peace Within the church. So in verse 15, it says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. Now, what does it mean to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts? Well, the peace here is not talking about this inner subjective feeling of serenity, like you know, in a TV ad you see people going to the mountaintop and doing yoga with their eyes shut, and they have this really nice, serene uh, you know, sensation. No, that is not what peace is. Peace here is a relational peace. Peace is an interpersonal kind of peace between us and other people. It means that we are not in strife and fighting constantly with people, but we are at peace with them. We are in harmony with them. It says that God calls all of us to one body. So even though we are all different and we may rub each other up the wrong way, we are all called by God to this body, BTPC, to be one body of Christ. And therefore, God calls us to peace with one another. And so all of us are responsible for maintaining this peace of Christ and all of us have our part to play. We must allow the peace of Christ to rule in us. That is, we must allow this peace-loving attitude and this priority to maintain peace, to, to be the deciding factor in everything that we do. So can you see how important it is to God that we maintain right relationships with other people in the church? It is very important. Now the problem for us is that we keep forgetting, right? And in the heat of the moment, we just forget and we say something that we shouldn't have said or we do something that we shouldn't have done. So how can we keep reminding ourselves of what God requires in us? Well, two things. Firstly, it says, be thankful. Be thankful. Now, it seems be thankful may not be connected to what he said earlier, but actually being thankful people is very important because when we are grateful to God and when we are thankful to God for His grace and love to us, then it's so much easier for us to be gracious and, and, and merciful and loving to other people, even though they don't deserve it. Because that is what God has done for us. And the other thing that helps us to remember what God requires is in verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. So at the center of everything that we do in church must be the Word of God, the Word of Christ, the message of the Gospel. We must let it dwell richly in us and among us. Now when I was living in Melbourne uh, a few years ago, they didn't have the floods like they do now. Okay? In fact, it was very dry. They had a severe drought and there was water restrictions and everything. And <clears throat> there was hardly any rain. And people told me that, you know, those rain that comes for 20 or 30 minutes, right? That's useless, completely useless. Don't see the rain and start turning on your tap as though the, you know, the reservoirs are full. Because why? That kind of rain doesn't penetrate into the ground. It just sits on the grass and when the sun comes out, it's all completely evaporated. It hasn't done any good. But the kind of rain that you need, it must last for days so that this rain can actually seep down into the ground and water the trees and run into the reservoirs. That is how we must let the word of Christ dwell in us. See, a little sprinkling here and there is not enough. See, you just open your Bible, read a few verses, shut it and talk about other things, it's not enough. Or you Use the Bible as a springboard for reflection, for maybe, uh, you know devotion. That's not enough. See, we must let the Word of Christ sink in, soak us up completely, so that we are swimming in it. See, and we do that by using Scripture in every part of our corporate body life. So we must. It says here, we must sing God's Word to one another. Are we doing that? Our songs must be full of God's Word. And we must pray God's Word. And we must preach God's Word. And we must study God's Word and discuss it and meditate on it and apply it. See, that is how we remind one another to live and to keep living lives that are consistent with who we are in Christ. So it's not just a pastor or the Bible study leader who has a responsibility of teaching and admonishing the church it says here, teach and admonish one another in all wisdom, see we each have a responsibility to teach and to admonish one another, to correct one another when we see our brother or sister going astray and it's why we all must learn God's word deeply so that we can teach and admonish one another And also, if you are called to teach and admonish, you are also called to receive teaching and admonishment from others in Christ. See, if other people rebuke you in love, if they correct you, something wrong in you, you ought to welcome it. You ought to humble yourself and listen to what God is saying to you through them. Don't be one of those people who are so quick to criticize, but when they are being criticized, they cannot take it. Don't be like that, but teach and admonish in all wisdom and accept one another's teaching and admonishment. And verse 17, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Now, in the Bible, somebody's name stands for what kind of person they are. So, doing everything in the name of the Lord Jesus means living in a way that is consistent with what kind of person Jesus is. It's consistent with his nature, his character. It means living a Christ-like lifestyle in everything that we do and say. That sums up everything that Paul has said until now. Everything that we do and say must be in the name of Christ and must be giving thanks to God. So we look in verses 12 to 17, what it means to live in Christ and under Christ's in the church setting okay. but living for Christ is not just something that we must do in church right? it also embraces everything else that we do in life so now Paul turns his attention to the family life how can we live for Christ at home verse 18 wives submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord now most people today think it is degrading for a wife to submit to her husband. You know, They say it's sexist, it's chauvinistic. But notice here in verse 20 it says uh, in verse 20 later on it says children obey your parents. In verse 22 it says slaves obey your masters. But it doesn't say wives obey your husbands. It says wives submit to your husbands. There is a difference between obey and submit. Obey implies a certain authority or hierarchy uh, of one over the other person. But submit is a voluntary submission. It means putting yourself under the leadership of somebody who is your equal. That is submit. Now submitting to your husband is not a blind obedience. It doesn't mean you just throw your brain away and just be a doormat and do whatever your husband wants you to do. It means you continue to be an intelligent partner to your husband. You're fully involved in every decision-making process. You can question, you can disagree, but, and you can point out things to your husband that he hasn't taken into consideration. But ultimately, at the end of the day, you need to respect and affirm and accept your husband's leadership in your marriage and in your family. That is what it means. And that means don't undermine your husband. And don't ridicule him. Don't belittle your husband in front of other people. And don't snipe at him. That's what it means. Why submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now, as is fitting in the Lord doesn't mean only when it's fitting in the Lord. It means because it is fitting in the Lord to submit to your husbands. Therefore, you must submit to your husbands. There is no exception clause here. Verse 19, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Well, the word here is the Greek word agape, which means to love sacrificially and unconditionally. It means loving your wife no matter what she does. Loving your wife means you lead tenderly by serving her, by providing for her, protecting her and putting her needs before yours. That is what it means to love your wife sacrificially. In the words "do not be harsh with them" are literally "Do not become bitter against them." And I think the NIV translation, "Do not be harsh with them" seems to suggest a physical kind of harshness, but it's more, I think, about the husband's attitude to the wife. "Do not become bitter against them. So as a, wife, as a husband, you may look after your wife right, but inside you're thinking, "Oh man, my wife is so selfish. Huh? never care about me. Never take me into consideration. I'm huh? so selfish. Just think about herself. No. It says here husbands must not become resentful, must not become bitter against their wives, but love them gladly and cheerfully in Christ. Verse 20 Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Now this is mainly speaking to children who are still dependent, who are still under the authority of their parents, uh, and not so much about children who are already grown up and independent. Okay, Paul is uh, here saying that children must obey their parents in everything because this is appropriate and pleasing behaviour for those who are in the Lord. Now remember, just as the same with wives and husbands Paul is talking to a Christian family here. So when he says obey in everything, it's not like an absolute rule. He's not thinking about parents who are non-Christians who are telling their children to do things that are wrong. Okay, by and large, he's expecting that Christian parents will tell their pa- children the right things to do. So he says that children you know must obey in everything that that's why. And he says, children when you obey your parents, it pleases the Lord. you' are actually obeying the Lord Jesus. So for those of us who are grown up children, maybe still under our parents' roofs, I don't think we are bound to obey them in everything. But we are bound to honor and to respect our parents and to take them seriously verse twenty one fathers do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Now it's interesting how Paul talks to the fathers rather than to the parents. Now, I mean, we know that you know both fathers and mothers have a role in disciplining children, but here, primarily, it is the fathers who are responsible for bringing up their children well and for disciplining their children. Now some fathers are absentee fathers. It means, you know, maybe they're not necessarily physically absent, but they're emotionally absent. They're spiritually absent from their children's lives. They come home and all they want to do is just sit in front of the TV and forget about everything else. Like just oblivious. Okay? They don't want to engage with their children. They, they delegate the responsibility Okay? So the, the mother, you go and discipline the children. Or maybe they don't even bother to discipline the children. The maid, la, just maid, look after. Of course, maid don't dare to school, la, right? Okay? And then they delegate the responsibility for the spiritual upbringing to the Sunday school teachers. Now, Pastor Andrew was telling me, uh, some people, uh, they heard about, you know, this couple who took their children to a very good church, but they, these parents had no role whatsoever in nurturing their children spiritually. And then another family who spiritually speaking are not very strong you know, the, the parents do have some problems in their marriage uh, but the father takes very seriously his role of bringing up his children spiritually so he would will, he will read to them he would know, uh, teach the Bible to his children every night and it turns out that the children who went to a very good church not necessarily do very well spiritually but the children who, who had a difficult uh, family upbringing but the father took seriously his responsibility they turn out to be solid Christians, so fathers, you are responsible for the spiritual upbringing of your children. don 't push it to your wife and don't palm it off to the Sunday school teachers. you know they only have two or three hours every week to teach them, and it 's not enough. You need to fulfill your role as fathers it says here don't embitter your children that means. Don't exasperate your children, don't frustrate them. When you discipline your children, don't be inconsistent, don't be arbitrary, don't be unfair, don't say one thing and do another thing, and don't explode in anger before you find out that, oh, actually he didn't do anything wrong. Children get exasperated by their parents sometimes, right? Because their parents don't stick to their word, they don't keep their promise, they don't apply the principle consistently, whatever it may be. And so these children can get discouraged, it says here. They can get disheartened. They may be like, well, I can't be bothered anymore to try. I can't be bothered to make my parents happy because I don't know what they want. I do this, they want that. I do that, they want this. So, because they are so unpredictable, I don't care. See, we must not get to that stage. So don't exasperate your children. So in all these family relationships, whether it's you're a wife, you're a husband, you're a child or father or parents, live it under the lordship of Christ, to please Him. And our last section is instructions for how to live for Christ at work. Okay, verse 22 to 25. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you, and to win their favour, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for men. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. And anyone who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong, and there is no favoritism. Now today we may not be slaves owned by masters, even though you may disagree. (laughs) But we are not slaves, we can leave our job anytime and we don't have to obey our masters in everything. Okay, but the principles here, how we should relate to our bosses, still applies today. He says work hard. Now, I probably don't have to tell you to work hard and to do a fair day's work for a fair day's pay because you're all probably doing twice as much as you're paid for, right? But uh, but you know, but what he's saying here, the principle is you must not be working for show. You see, you must not be. A oh, boss is around, right, act really busy. Boss is away, Facebook comes on, right? No. Okay, that's not how you should work. As Christians, your boss is not the human superior in charge of you, but your boss is Christ up in heaven. And we are working for the Lord Jesus. And so, we need to work with all of our heart and not for show. But we must give our best. And lastly, in chapter 4, verse 1. Masters. Provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Now you, have, you may have uh, people under you at work. You may not be a master like in a CEO or something, but you may have people who are under you, you're in charge of them. Maybe you have a maid at home under your command. Well, you must exercise your authority with kindness and concern for the well-being of your workers. Treat them justly, fairly, Stick to the contract. Pay them what they are due. Give them the off days they are due to them. Don't threaten them if they don't do unpaid overtime. Don't take advantage of your workers. That's what it means. Because you also have a master in heaven. You are not the big boss. You work for a bigger boss who is in heaven and one day you have to report to him. So make sure that you can report to him without being ashamed. So as we Conclude today. Remember who you are. You are in Christ. And in Christ you have died and you have been raised to life and you are seated with Him at the right hand of God and one day you will appear with Him in glory. So as citizens of heaven, take off the old sinful you and put on the new you in godliness and in submission to the Lord Jesus Christ in that Hugh Grant, Sarah Jessica Parker show I was talking about, they kept wanting to go back to New York because they were so comfortable. They, they can't stand the old small-town life in America. They want to go back to New York. But do you know what? They would be dead if they went back to New York. And the only way they can remain alive is if they live their new identities and live their new lives in that witness protection program. And we too must live out our new identities in Christ because the old way of life leads to death and we must not go back there but the new way of life the, 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 the way that leads to life is life in Christ and so let Christ rule over every aspect of your lives he must be lord over everything lord over your priorities your ambitions lord over how you use your bodies Lord, over your relationships in the church, your your home, and your work, Lord, over everything. Let's pray. Our heavenly Father, we thank you for your great grace and mercy towards us, that in Christ we have died to sin, we have been raised with Him, we have seated with Him, and we await His coming. We thank you for the immense privilege. It is to be the chosen ones, the chosen people of God, the body of Christ and citizens of heaven. Please help us by the Holy Spirit to be who we are, to live out daily our new identities in Christ and help us to put to death our sinful old selves, to rid ourselves of immorality and greed and interpersonal strife, to put on Christ our new self, in love and forgiveness towards one another. And in all our relationships in church and at home and at work, may we live under the Lordship of Christ and please Him in everything. For we ask these things in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.